Chingi la yumom, chingi wala to our podcast series, Custodial Care. My name is Eleanor Bancroft. I'm a proud Bundjalung woman with blood ties to Scotland and Poland, speaking to you from Bundjalung country. And my name is Kiralee Dawn, and I am a proud Barkindji woman, also living here on Bundjalung country. And we are presenting conversations about custodial care. This season, we are focusing on the 2022 floods of Lismore. And these are the stories of the Koorimau Flood Hub and the volunteers who help support and rebuild our community. and welcome to episode four. Uh, today I'm going to be interviewing Kiralee Dawn and her experiences at the Kurimao Flood Hub. Hey Kiralee. Hi. Full disclosure, Kiralee Dawn is also my girlfriend, so if we make silly flirty comments to each other, just know that that's the nature behind them. Kiralee, so in 2022... On February 28th, the rains came down very hard, um, very strong. And maybe just take us back to our story beginning in Mullum and going over to the Zivic Hall. And what was it like for you to feel and experience cleaning out people's houses after flood water had risen to almost the ceiling heights in Mullum? I remember like when we were driving through Mullum just seeing how many people were on the streets. You know, every single block there were people walking with brooms and gloves and mops and gumboots on and they just seemed like there were hundreds of people in the street just knocking on doors willing to help. Um, Yeah, I remember the smell. Going into people's houses and seeing absolutely everything trashed, absolutely everything with mud on it, you know, tables flipped and it seemed like you could take the entire contents of your home and put it in like a um, blender or something and, and just flip it. I, I, I think before this I would never would have guessed that flood water could, would physically like move furniture and move things so much around a home and put things in different rooms and it'd just all be complete. Um, yeah, like having the house turned upside down and then out of the house as well. Can you remember the feelings that were like occurring in your body as you were standing in some of the buildings and cleaning out some of the the flood water and and debris that had been left behind? I feel like there was a lot of shock and adrenaline, you know, because as as devastating as it was when I think back to that moment on those first days, I feel like there was so much adrenaline pumping through everybody, just like, let's get in and do what we can and um, check in on the next people. And there wasn't enough time to sort of, I think, sit in the melancholy and the devastation of it all you know what I mean I remember going to the civic center and and being like pretty blown away because it was so organized I remember they had people standing out the front they had address lists they had so many people standing around like and then just more people showing up showing up they already had like a hall full of donations and um they were really organized it's interesting when we look across the board at all the hubs and just to note this now is that most of the time the people were working at Civic and the first people who were there volunteering and we saw this also at Lismore at the Cream Hale were in fact our women. Oh yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with what you noticed in that space, you know, like um, around the different kind of I guess roles that came out during this natural disaster when everyone was in their survival instinct? Well, I think, okay, one is that I think women were inherently relational beings. So I think we are like biologically designed to be picking up on how each other are doing and caring for each other. But also the way that the care economy works and the way that we, it's like something like volunteer work is like, I don't want to say percentage because I'm going to make it up. And I know that it's predominantly women who are working in volunteer roles. It's predominantly women who are in care roles. Um, So I think we're used to it. 
I think we're that we have more of a um like environment of of women being in volunteer roles and kind of doing what we have to do because the system obviously doesn't do it and it relies on on women and people to be doing these care roles uh for free to be able to survive the the structures that are placed upon us was there a moment where you were like i am like moved to action from this you know i guess um I'm wondering, like, what point did you feel like, oh, like, we're really going to need to do something here? I think that happened before before we'd seen anything, actually, because um, I remember before we'd even gone to Mullum, I called a woman I work with at a, which is a volunteer um, not-for-profit group called Pregnancy, Birth and Beyond, and I spoke to her and said, all right, let's get a GoFundMe up for the mums. Um, and the families because they're going to need a lot of support. And that was before we'd seen what had happened. So it was like, yeah, we knew it was big and we knew there was going to need to be a lot of help. And moving into, um, you know, obviously your pivotal involvement in the Courier Mail Hub. Um, so right now we're, we're in the storyline of being at Mullumbimby in those initial stages as the water is just recited from the town, coming in, doing cleans. Um, you know, I guess tell us a little bit about how you moved from being in the Mullumbimby space to over in the more West Bundjalung, Lismore region to end up being the support role that you took up at the Korea Mail. Well, I think like we talked about last time we were yarning about this in, in your episode, it was um, wanting to share the resources. Malum, um you know, it, it was hit hard, but it was also very well resourced. There was a lot of people with feet on the ground there already, and I remember we couldn't even access Lismore yet. And we knew that the floodwater had been a lot higher there, um, that there was a lot more people, that there was going to be a greater need for support um yeah and then the first time seeing Lismore it was a shock because it's so big how much devastation there was this the piles the piles and piles of of debris out the front of people's houses and like that that's memories and belongings and family heirlooms and um yeah, just people's lives sitting out the front of their houses. But, um, yeah, I think for months we were just driving and looking at... I was always noticing where are the reeds in the fences because that means the water's been up that high and been through that area, just seeing all these reeds hanging from fences. Um, but then, yeah, like washing machines in trees or... I think everyone's seen the photos, just just belongings and trees, things that shouldn't be there, that you're like, how is it even being held up by a gum tree right now? Like, way too high. And so when you were over here in Lismore, um, you know, those initial stages, do you want to talk through the process of what it was like to be in the space as it was just kind of building around you? Like, it, ha- it, it happened quite quickly, almost like a snowball that just, like, kind of took control of itself. But I'd love from your perspective around your experience of of how the hub was kind of just, like, coming together around us. So I feel like the way that the hub came together it was in a needs-based way. It was being responded to. That was the big key difference as well. There weren't people and there weren't structures that were already there dictating what it had to look like. There wasn't like, um, you know, we weren't even like a, a charity group that existed and had our own structures and hierarchies and things that we had to like adhere to. There was It was a fully blank slate. And I just remember it coming together really organically, being responded to like moment by moment, um, I feel like there was a lot of synchronicities where it would be things like we'd need something and something would just appear straight away with exactly what we needed. Um, and it organically grew like 
from one marquee and then I think I was just looking at a photo and it was like a couple of days later there's six marquees. Shane Phillips was up from Sydney a couple of days in. Um, yeah, mob were coming up and starting already to come up and help out. People were taking their uniforms off in order to be able to show up and, and help out the community. Um, you know, we, we built that medical centre in the front. We had a doctor who came and was, you know, our, our go-to doctor. It meant that we had a medical centre there where people could uh, turn up because people were getting lots of different injuries, either from the flood water and having cuts and things or uh, bigger bigger injuries than that. Um, but when we were also doing, you know, the helicopter drops, we were able to take Dr. Rage out with us, um, to the community and they loved her. They loved, they're still asking about her. Um, and you know what else? Some of the, the mob out there, like Malabugamar and Bayugo, they were saying that they'd never felt so cared for. I remember them saying that, and that was there were they never felt so cared for than they did by the Kuri Mail. But it's that thing of people knowing that they're not forgotten, that there's a group of people thinking about them, caring for them, wondering how they're doing, checking in, seeing if they've got enough of what they need. It's probably also important to point out when we talk about Malabugamar and Bayugal in this episode, we're referring to missions that were set up in West Bundjalung where groups of Indigenous people were moved on to um, about an hour out of a local town and an hour's drive from any shop. So that's the reality in which the location is that we're talking about these communities. Yeah, and it's a community that Ella also went to school in and grew up in for some time. But that's also the thing too is that a lot of the way we were organising things was relationship-based and that's something that people talk about when they're talking about the right ways to organise and do things. You know, it's that back at the hub, everybody knew somebody in a different community somewhere and it's, and then we would be able to go to them, oh, you're the right person to talk to, what's happening out there and what do we need and you make calls to your people and, you know, but... um. And that's the that was the big one thing that the police and the army and the fireys and all these things didn't have was that they didn't have relationships with people in different communities and they didn't know who was out there and they didn't know who to ask and they didn't know who to talk to and they didn't know the kinds of problems it could cause if you're, you know, sending a whole bunch of donations out to one group and then another group's not getting it and, you know, things like that. Um it's why I think the query mail was so effective. It was because of relationships. You were playing a relatively pivotal role within the aspect of food drops um, and looking after, I guess, our rural communities who were not necessarily affected directly by floodwater but were affected by things like landslides and, um, you know, earth being moved so that roads were inaccessible. How did you end up the G.I. Jane of the Korea Mail <laughs> flood hub? Because I do remember at one moment I turned around and just to paint a picture of Kiki pre-floods, you know, um, soft and some kind of like soft linen like dress wear that she would wear, flowy, whatever is flowy. And um, there was just this change where suddenly your hair was in a ponytail, you had a bum bag on, I don't even know where you got it, but damn, it looked good. That was yours. And, <laughs> and little bike pants. And you were running around the fastest I've ever seen you run. And I can say that as like you are by far the slowest person I've ever met on earth, but mm. in the most beautiful and adoring way. And you were running around compiling hampers and boxes of food and getting in contact with, um, yeah, our regional and remote communities who were, you know, so we're talking about people that may be an hour and a half, two hours drive who've been impacted by the riverway systems but not in a way that it was big enough to get media attention um, or so forth. So do you want mm. to talk a little bit about that journey for you? I remember we were in Malum and we didn't have any shoes when we were <laughs> first there, because we don't, don't wear them a lot, and I remember actually, like, I got given these, um, like, hiking boots, and they fit perfectly, and then that was my uniform the rest of the, the flood hub time. 
But yeah, bless that woman who gave me those shoes. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I can move fast when I need to. Um, but I think I remember what was happening with like people just getting in contact and like we'll probably sign new social media about them being like, we need this, we need that. Um, to be honest, I can't even remember how it happened, but somebody was like, I've got a helicopter. And at the flood hub, we were combining this of like where all the communities that are affected. And like you said, maybe they're not flooded, but maybe they're cut off. Um, because those people who are cut off, like their road is cut off by a landslide or something like this, they also cannot access any goods or services and things they need. Um, so we were all creating lists of that. Um, I think you called Annie Carroll out at Malabuguma. And, um, yeah, out in West Bundjalung country, there was a uh, one fellow who was on the other side of a 15-metre-long bridge that got cut off. So, yeah, we were just sort of daily, like, keeping in touch with the land council, but then we started doing helicopter jobs of, of food and, you know, whatever that he needed. Um, and this was all being organised by private helicopters. I don't even fully know where all the funding came from for that I think it was like wealthy people in the community were sort of silently like putting money in but um rotor wings in Lismore were a massive massive help and did a lot of really good work and were sending out a lot of their helicopters and um for Lismore anyway yeah rotor wings became like the sort of central point for helicopters going in and out yeah, and they and they were coordinating donations, and they they helped out a lot. Um, but yeah, it's it's it is incredible to me that like there was, yeah, there was a bunch of us who had never done anything to do with helicopters or pilots or like no no the pilots were pilots okay but, <laughs> but I mean there was like a bunch of people that were in these like Facebook chat groups, and I still haven't like met all these people. Um, you know, but there was one guy who was organizing all these helicopters up to like Upper Main Arm and Wilson's Creek and sort of the mountain areas up there. And then you had, you know, we were doing them out more like we went out to Tabulum, went out to Malabugama a few times. Um, because they weren't, they weren't acting very quick to get that bridge fixed or anything. There wasn't, though, yeah, I remember the community were trying to make a pulley system to get goods across and, like, it wasn't working. And then we were using the helicopter sometimes too to take, to take things out to a community that was too far for people to drive in a day to bring those goods out there. The roads the roads were fucked or they were, you know, you didn't know where there was, like, we hadn't done reccees yet, so you didn't know if there was landslides in certain bits. So then, yeah, being able to send um, food out that way, um was needed but yeah it was completely done by citizens and private funding and private helicopters and people just like organizing themselves and there was all these people who'd yeah never done anything to do with helicopters before who were then becoming like um gi janes of their own yeah i don't know what to call it like they were (laughs) being the helicopter like go-to people and they'd be like taken off it's landed here are the coordinates <laughs> so wh- where were the government helicopters where were the helicopters that our taxpaying money pays for i don't know i don't know where they were in the first few days when i was then i um then i was dealing a lot with like whatever police liaison officer they would send over you know we had like the fireys coming the police coming and and sort of like, I don't know how many days it was in when they really started to activate. But I remember when they came in and they were like, all right, we're going to start doing um, the helicopter drops and we're going to start doing more of a, you know, and they were coming to the Karima and like collecting donations and then they were going to drive them to places as well, which we were also like... um yeah, I don't know, that can be problematic having police rock up into a community like to, <laughs> yeah, fix a problem that the state's created. But, um, 
Yeah, I remember, anyway, I remember them trying to get involved. I remember it being very, like, awkward and disruptive, to be honest. It was disruptive when they started, you know, because like, we were exhausted. So there's a part where you're like, yes, you have the funding and the resource and all these things should do it. But then, obviously, like we've talked about the red tape and things, they weren't as proactive. They weren't just, like, meeting the needs of the moment and also... They would send a new police liaison officer up every five days. And I remember this one point being like, like, for, yeah, for this fellow who was on the other side of the creek that we were sending goods to, I was like, having to retell this story every single, every five days that there was a new um, person because, like, in some areas the roads had started opening up, but for him that bridge is a 15 meter long concrete bridge it wasn't getting fixed anytime soon and it sounded like when it first happened anyway it sounded like the, the council and that out there they didn't know it had happened they weren't checking in on people um yeah and I remember every five days you have to give all the same information again like they weren't handing it down and I remember saying to one of them once like you know how terrifying it is that I have to keep telling you about this man telling you about doing these jobs, like keep giving the coordinates again, like why is there no handover when you're in a disaster and you're literally talking about people's lives, like why? Yeah, so that was frustrating. Well, I think our audience is listening and if any of them are Indigenous community or hang out with Indigenous community, it's probably pretty aware to them that the police are not necessarily here to protect and serve us. You know, and that's something that there's already um, distrust within our communities around government officials and the government and those that are so here to you know, do their services to the general public, but we're not involved in that. It it almost amplified during the floods how much more that was reinforced for our community, actually, that there's not a massive level of protection there available at these um, so-called government servants. Yeah, and, like, the thing that's so frustrating, too, is that because they're the ones with all the money. And I remember the Attorney General came at one point and then I was like, just give us the money because we know what we're doing. And they hadn't even, like gotten on the, you know, he came out with the first, you know, politicians and the media people before they were, like, even trying to sort of do anything. And, um, yeah, I remember being like, give us the money because obviously we're doing it and the community is responding. And he was like, oh, if I had a dollar for every time I'd heard this from a, like, local community group. And I'm like, how many more times do you have to hear it before you just... Start funding grassroots local organisations, Yeah. Yeah, what was so amazing was that it's people are really creative in disasters. They're really resourceful and we need to take care of each other. We will go above and beyond. And we saw so many hundreds of people doing that that I really do believe like that is innate in us and and we can do it. But to see people just like if someone had said to me, oh, if there's a disaster there, like the community themselves without any like support from the government or anything will be having helicopters in the air and rescuing people and people scaling mountains and people driving you know boats through floodwaters and will be be able to tell someone who'll tell someone else who knows somebody else who will be able to be like I've got this and you'll organize yourselves in such a way um yeah I don't know it's just mind-blowing to what what's actually possible when we don't have any red tape but we have each other and we're able to talk to each other. What can get done? Can you share with us one of your, like, magical moments from the hub? Um, what came to mind was these trains that we used to do when somebody would come with, like, a big truck and we'd be offloading, like, a whole heap of water or something else heavy. And, like, without anybody ever saying it, everyone would just sort of, like you know, like a hive of bees or something, we'd all just sort of like come together and then form this long line and we would be passing um, be passing uh, water into each other's hands along a long train to like get it where it had to go. But I think like the magic in it is the, the part where no one's directing or coordinating these things that just sort of collectively you'd start just acting as one and moving together 
and um yeah it is like a beehive or something it feels innate it feels animal and it feels like we're just without yeah direction hierarchy being told us the way it's got to be it was like literally from the ground up everybody just moving in a really harmonious way towards a common goal the goal to care the goal to care yeah wouldn't it be a different world if our um if our gdp was actually uh tested on our care rather than our growth of products and exports <laughs> yeah yeah <coughs> i've been thinking about you know um dr joy james is a black academic from the states um we were watching one of her lectures recently, but she was talking about um, the captive maternal. That's what she called it, the captive maternal. And about how this state relies on us caring for each other to be able to sustain itself. That it relies on this unpaid care economy that we have with each other. And, you know, I think Blackfellas know this better than anyone, what it is to need to care for each other, not just because it's innate to us, but also because we need to, to be able to survive. But then this disaster also made me realise that when the state and this and these structures collapse in on themselves, which they're designed to do because they're not sustainable, so, you know, at some points along the way that's going to be happening, but as they collapse in on themselves, like, they really rely on us caring for each other for survival like for the literal um survival of each other even after the system collapses we only survive because we care for each other there comes no explanation apology or anything from these like services that we pay for that don't do what they are paid to do in those times yeah and that's what this whole time showed us was that we we care about each other we will not let each other die when these natural disasters happen and it was still the unpaid labour of people who care and who give a shit that made us, you know, made this town survive. And then how do we flip the economy and the structures and things so that it's, I don't know. Probably the value systems, values and beliefs, because if people valued caring for each other rather than coin in the bank account, then we'd have a different kind of society at hand, Yeah. Well, this is the thing, you can only have that coin in the bank account. People can only go to those jobs which just suck the life out of them because they've got people caring for them at home. Because we've got because we're caring for each other, because we're loving each other. Okay, it's very fitting that we're talking about the care economy and the concept of care as we sit here opposite you because, you know, I'd like to bring in just a little bit more about what you do when you're not in the flood hub space and mostly to highlight that you know often when we have these disaster situations occur it's it's the same kind of people I guess showing up to give themselves over and so in your everyday life when you're not flood hubbing about and when you're not um you know GI janing and sending helicopters over to West Bundjalung to save people's lives what do you do with yourself? So I'm a doula which means I support mothers and families um, through pregnancy, birth and postpartum. I attend births um, and support there. Afterwards, I support with body care and with food and nutrition. I also volunteer with a group called Pregnancy, Birth and Beyond who've been active in this community for over a decade. And um, and then we do a lot of birth advocacy. I'm also a dancer, I do somatics and embodiment work and I'm interested in the way we care for ourselves, the way we care for each other. I'm also very interested in the way that, um, yeah, the state relies on and extracts that kind of support and work from each other to uphold itself. So talking about the care economy moving forward, from that space. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about some of the projects that have, I guess, been birthed or are going to be birthed as a result or because of your involvement at the Flood Hub? Yeah, so I guess because of my work as a doula and working with PBB, um, during the flood work, you know, I was really acutely aware of, like, the mothers who were being flood affected um, 
what's happening with yeah what's happening with mothers what's happening with pregnant women and people um and yeah we were sharing sort of resources and things with PBB and Mullum but some of the things we were having to organize for people was yeah to be bringing food uh to them in um you know whatever home or place that they had been moved to um you know and some of these women people who were really heavily pregnant who were in the floodwaters themselves um you know who've lost all of their belongings and everything now and are not only having to deal with literal home security and where they're going to live you know but this is also a time when they otherwise would want to be like nesting and preparing and feeling really safe because safety is one of you know is the most important thing you can feel as you prepare to give birth and then of course something like this is is going to completely rock that foundation of of safety so we were yeah we were really concerned about how the mothers and the families and the babies are doing so some of the work we were doing was just you know making sure we could drop off food to them um some support groups also started started up during that time and yeah the flood work it's like the the hub has closed down now but the work that we're doing within the community and that needs to be done following a flood like this last years and so what we're doing is like with the returning which is a charity that you started we have now got a postpartum care support program so we are providing uh, six weeks of meals or grocery support to Indigenous mothers in our area up here where we can service and that is to help take some of the burden out of that time to make sure we can give people nutrient dense nourishing food you know and for the whole family who's often got lots of you know jargons in the house yeah and this is ongoing like care and support that we're providing to to the community and even though the flood hub is closed down the need to still show up and and do work and be of service is still very much prevalent in our region. You still think there's a lot of work to rebuild our society? Well, yeah, I mean, Lismore's going to need a lot of time, but I think every community, there's so much care work and responsibility that we should have for each other that's actually needed. Like, you know, like we were just saying, you know, with providing um, food for new mothers, like that's something that I think people should be doing everywhere. And then we should be um, caring for each other, you know, in 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 every community. How do you say this? It's like we need to revolutionise the care industry so it's not just women doing this unpaid. So it's constantly unpaid labour that is on the backs of women, particularly black women, because we are upholding a shitty system through that. But we also need to care for each other in order to survive it. So... I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that if we didn't solely rely on black women to be the ones doing this sort of unpaid labour or any women um, and were all taking responsibility for this kind of care work and, you know, knowing who your neighbours are and actually sharing resources, um, I think we would have more well and whole societies in in general be able to fight capitalism in the colony better if we're well arrested and we're cared for and we know that other people care for us and are thinking of us. I'd like to circle back to the Korea Mail Hub and its achievements and what it was able to do to support the community and, and beyond. Why do you personally think it was so successful? You know what, I think it was so successful because all of the ways that people talk about us needing to organize ourselves, um, you know, to like the kind of right way of organizing ourselves and doing things, it all happened really naturally and organically at the Curry Mail. Things like, okay, we had female leadership. We had really, really supportive men and brothers and uncles who were they were so willing to help, to listen to the women, to take direction from women. They really came alongside and lifted us up. Um, there was no hierarchy 
And, you know, Naomi was really a real leader for us in that. She was from day one. There's no hierarchy. Um, I think because we started with a blank canvas kind of thing, it meant that, yeah, there was no uh, structures and things that were already there existing that you had to sort of uh, fight against and create new ways of of doing things because there was a new way in every moment. But everybody was very adaptable. Everyone was really responsive. People were not holding on to something as like their thing that they were the boss of or, or whatever because it just wouldn't have worked. Um, and we were old school, like paper and pen. And we were just constantly like, yeah, meeting the need of the moment instead of needing to do things in a way that we'd intellectually decided was the structure that we will now follow. Like there was no methodology um, and there was a lot of trust. People were action-based, they were showing up. There was a lot of self-responsibility, I think, from people. Um, and I think because there wasn't like a structure or a hierarchy or a sort of methodology that we had to follow, it meant that um, that's why we got that sort of beehive people just sort of jumping in and turning up in the right moment because there was room for spontaneity and there was room for adaptability and, um, yeah, and there was room for creative thinking as well. Yeah, it was symbiotic. It's almost like the law of the land was playing out within the, the culture, I guess, that we had unknowingly set up. You know, the word respect comes to mind a mm. lot too when I reflect back at the hub and just how we all moved with deep respect in our heart for one another and it didn't really matter what your gender expression was, what your ancestry was, what your, you know, anything was, where you were placed on the class system. It was a, a place of real respect and also acceptance, I think, that everybody felt that they had their place and that they could be accepted and that they too could get their needs met regardless of um, who they were and what body they were living in. Yeah, yeah, and there was a lot of integrity from people. I th I really do think, yeah, maybe natural disasters bring out the best and the worst in people. Yeah, I think about the law of the land too in the way even like Arnie Jackie and Wayne would be, you know, people don't take too much. Like even at the Koori Coles, mm. the idea that like that old way that you you don't take the whole harvest, you leave things yeah. on the tree for the birds and the insects and our more than human kin to also eat. And, you know, that was that was in there too with our, mm -hmm. our key Indigenous volunteers, the idea that we're here to support you. But remember, if we're going to lead, we're going to teach you our way, which is don't take too much. Yeah. So... From the moment you stepped out to Lismore, how many days, months, weeks do you think you were here volunteering, supporting the community? So I was out there for about six months, I think. At the start, it was definitely every day. Um, towards the end, we had to start pairing it back a bit. You know, things like burnout was starting to creep in. It took a really big toll on us. That level of sort of adrenaline and exertion and like that level of um also I guess responsibility um because once you start doing something like that you want to see it through um it taught a lot of lessons I think like you said it's often the same people in community who show up all the time which is why I think if you're listening and you're somebody who doesn't volunteer or doesn't and volunteer doesn't look like in a structural sense either it can be with your family like and being that person who's who's giving and things but like I think that if you are able to that we should do that for each other um the job that I had and meant that I was able to spend you know, that amount of hours during the day doing that, coming home, we'd be texting people and organising things and then and be working later that night. Um, and, yeah, that's why <laughs> burnout and stuff happens. I think we avoided it, just. There is something in, like, yeah, because the care work often is unpaid, how much can you give? When do you have to start giving to yourself so that you can sustain 
yeah, it's about being sustainable, right, with your energy and how much you're giving to what you're receiving. And um, I felt very cared for and looked after by, by our mob here, though, you know. And, like, the way that black people care about each other, for each other, for the rest of the whole community is, uh, like, just something else. I remember one day there, there was a guy who we had been helping. His house had be, he'd been coming and, and um, we'd been sending like volunteers and then tradies um, to his house, yeah, to to help get it back. Um, one day he was at home and then he he saw a, a titter walking down the street and um, she looked lost and things, so he ended up talking to her and bringing her over to the Quarry Mail and. Um, for the first part, I was like, wow, this is this is something because, you know, before the Kurimal flood hub was here and this fellow had been like, who's not Indigenous, for him to be, you know, coming and being in a black space meant that then when he was at home and he saw, when he saw this woman that he, A, spoke to her, B, knew where to take her, thought, okay, I know a community space, a black space, that'll be safe for her, I should take her here. You know, and I was like, wow, this is something where we're seeing like small day-to-day changes, I guess, because of this, because I really thought, I don't know that this, this guy would have, A, engaged with her or been known where to take, take her, you know. Um, so we were all talking to her for a bit and she was pregnant and from Grafton and um, after we'd finished for the day, Naomi ended up driving her, driving from Lismore, driving her all the way to Grafton because there wasn't going to be any emergency accommodation available in Lismore for her to go to or for us to be able to find it. So she drove from Lismore all the way to Grafton and then drove all the way home. And this is after doing a full day at the flood hub. It's something she probably wouldn't talk about. But I was like, this is the way we care for each other. Like, this is Naomi who's been doing nonstop days and still has the time and still has the energy to drive another Tito all the way back to Grafton and then come back, you know. This is the above and beyond that happens. And I think it's important to highlight, you know, this is why it's very important that places have cultural centres or places which are Indigenous-led and run for these very things so that the wider community do know where to go, do know what direction to point our youth in, you know, can support us in those spaces. Unfortunately, you know, segregation is real because of the policies put in place in this country that has separated us for a really long period of time. There's a lot of distrust between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. And I think what we saw at the Kurimau Flood Hub was um, at least the beginning or melting away of that distrust for both non-Indigenous and Indigenous peoples who are working side by side. And I think this is a great blessing that we saw from the natural disaster was that it really, I remember at one point being in the hub really thinking, oh, this could be like the key to, to reconciling relations, you know, in, in how crazy that seems in a disaster, in a place where people have lost everything. But actually, this is where I feel like people meet each other in their rawness when they've lost everything, when they aren't built around the status of their their place in a community or the things that they acquire or hoard in their homes. But actually, when we come to the table with nothing but our bareness, our humanness, we can meet in that space. And for me, that feels like what was the the deep magic and power of it, you know, was that 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 was this this portal where people were being profoundly healed while also being, you know, destroyed in the same way. But I think, um, you know, the the black care is something that um, has meant that our society and communities have been able to survive because in a time period pre what we're existing in now. If we weren't caring for each other, we would be dead. Um, And, you know, in saying that, the black community, they care with comedy. (laughs) Yeah, black joy is one of the ways we care for each other and there was always a lot of laughs happening at the Corrymail. That that is what, you know, part of what made it a healing space as well, just hearing those laughs and hearing those yarns. And I also want to say one of the ways that really stood out to me that... that, um, 
our brothers were showing care particularly, but also some of our titters was, you know, like Wayne and Noel, Nikki, even their families, they were just put their hand up straight away in those those first days there too to stay overnight and look after the setup that we'd made, you know, that day. So you're looking at marquees, donations, you know, heaps of water, we were whiteboards with you know, communities' names on it, so we're figuring out when we're dropping where and things like that. Um, generators. Um, but, yeah, there's a little bit of looting happening, and I remember they, you know, were there at the flood hub all day, and then, yep, we'll stay here tonight, we'll camp out tonight um, on chairs. I remember at the start it was on just just on some plastic chairs. And then we brought a camper sleeper in. Then we got a camper sleeper in. And Wayne, you know, was someone who was staying out there all the time, keeping an eye on things. And, like, I guess is what I mean by, like, really being supported by our brothers. And uh, they just they gave so, so, so much. And um, nothing was too much of a problem. Um yeah, to just be camping out, to be keeping an eye on it, to be being the security guards when we needed it. After volunteering all day, like not going home to the warm bed instead of be doing this. Full protection role. They really gave a lot. Yeah, full protection role. And for, you know, the 12 months afterwards. Yeah, but yeah, we felt very supported and yeah, our black brothers care a lot, care a lot too, do a lot. Considering we've spoken about care so much in this podcast, maybe you can give our audience some takeaways on how you, who's somebody who shows up in care in your day-to-day life but also during the hub, how do you resource yourselves uh, in order to ensure that you're in good health to be able to care? So I guess first I want to say that being someone who studies somatics and ways of, you know, healing... um, with the body and, and things, I still struggle with it of knowing where is the limit and where's the capacity. And what I see with a lot of people who are in care roles, particularly women, is that we just give and give and give and give from like an endless source, you know, and that's it's beautiful. It's beautiful to be like that. The reason we need to be like that is because of colonialism and capitalism. And there is a responsibility that we have to be able to sustain ourselves so that we can care for each other for longer. So, you know, one of these is ensuring that we actually rest, particularly, you know, I think particularly for blackfellas is that we historically haven't been able to rest. There is a lot of um, negative connotations around rest, laziness, um, you know, things like that. But if we're not adequately resting, then we're just being extracted from in the same way that the land is. And then we're trying to help each other survive from a really depleted place. In theory, I could say it would be, you know, it's about taking care of yourself. It's about like being aware of your, your energy and when you are depleted and things like that. But life doesn't always, especially when you're living under colonialism and capitalism like these systems will not give people the opportunity to rest and to care deeply for ourselves we have to create those opportunities because capitalism doesn't want anybody to rest it wants everybody to be rushing it wants everyone to be in survival mode um and that feeds it as well us being like this so that's why you know to rest is to resist capitalism but we have to create opportunities for rest, for healing, things like that on our own. We have to feel worthy of it. We have to remind each other that we're worthy of it um, so that we're not in a, an endless cycle of productivity. All right, you fellas, turn off those mobile phones, turn off that computer, turn off whatever you're listening to us on, and the invitation is to just go in, have a nap, restful breaths. Well, well, she says doesn't have a nap, but you know, if you're at work or somewhere, then just have some restful breaths. Just start with the breath, maybe one or two. Close your eyes, quiet the mind, and then go back into your day. Well, that leads me into 
our last question, which is about custodial care. Um, so, Kirli, what does custodial care mean to you? Custodial care to me is a responsibility to life. It is a responsibility to care for the life that is around us, to care for each other. Um, it is a shared responsibility. I think it can also be resistance. Caring for for each other in a way that enables us to survive, that is a resistance against the colony. Um, when we care for each other in ways that are outside of capitalism, I think that's that's a form of resistance. But it's necessary for our survival. It feeds us more than money ever will. And when natural disasters happen and it's the community that is really who who will save each other, I think it's, um, you know, the best investment you can make in your survival uh, is, is caring for each other, but also knowing how to care for each other, knowing how to ask for what you need, knowing how to ask somebody else for what they need. You know, caring for people in a way that they need and not the way you think that they need to be cared for or that society tells you it's what it should look like. I think it's the only way we're going to survive. Thank you for coming and joining me in the studio, Kiralee, and sharing your experiences and your stories and Bugle Bear for showing up in the world the way you do with such deep care. Thank you. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Healthy North Coast, for supporting us to put together these stories so that we may share our experiences with all our community across this nation.